0: Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. This extra episode is with Nate Silver from 538, the guru of database journalism. He's here to explain the data behind the pandemic, the data behind the presidential election, and the relationship between the two. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude, with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics, writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me slash talk. Helen and I spoke to Nate on Thursday evening. Nate is out of the city because of the lockdown, so I'm afraid this is not quite in studio quality. We're going to get on to the presidential election, but we started, inevitably, with the pandemic. Nate, obviously there's still a huge amount that we don't know about The shape of this pandemic. But we know a lot more than we did, say, six weeks ago. Just give us a sense from your point of view how do the models that we have now compare to the models that were being used in the very early days of this? Are they noticeably better?
1: It's a difficult question for two or three reasons. I think one reason is that people tend to mistake models that assume that nothing was done, that no interventions were taken, versus models that tried to account for and predict the impact of social distancing. So the kind of famous Imperial College predictions that involved more than a million people dying in the UK, I believe, or close to that, and I think two million in the United States, that assumed that if the disease is totally unchecked until you reach herd immunity, then, you know, a lot of people would die. People, I think, sometimes did not understand that those were kind of conditional predictions on ICUs being overwhelmed, on nothing really changing to stop the spread, whereas in the U.S. and the U.K. and almost every country, people have tried to stop it, belatedly in some cases, but that has cut way down on at least what we would get from the first wave. But, you know, so that's one, one issue is like predictions conditional on nothing happening. We're not in that reality because people have made interventions. The second issue is even within that, there is a lot of uncertainty. Almost every parameter of this disease is still an unknown including, by the way, how many people are actually dying. So in New York City, for example, where hospitals were very heavily hit, a lot of people are dying in their own homes, and only now is the city going back and trying to count deaths they may have missed before, the same as true in countries like Italy and Spain, where they were only counting hospital deaths. And so it may actually be that 50% to 100% more people are dying than than what was reported in real time in the worst affected areas. With all that said, I mean, I have someone who has never built an epidemiological model, but I have built other models, and I know that like, it's a difficult thing to do, especially given the exponential growth that you have with a pandemic or a disease, is that if one parameter is a little bit off, well, then maybe twice as many people get sick or half as many people get sick. So in the US, if you have a model that said 150,000 people die versus 70,000, say, those might sound like really different predictions, but given that you're dealing with exponentials, They're not really that different. And so it looks to me, unfortunately, like some of the more recent predictions may wind up being fairly accurate in the U.S. Where, by the way, it's not clear whether the U.S. or the U.K. has actually hit the peak in the number of people dying or not. Things are not getting as bad as fast as they were, but that's different than saying that we necessarily are at a peak. And even if we are at a peak, you could have a peak with a long come down. In Italy and Spain, the numbers have unambiguously gotten better. However, it's happening slowly. You'll go from 800 people dying a day to 700 to 600. That's a slow step downward. and It still means you're unfortunately accumulating a lot of deaths, a lot of tragic loss of life.
0: I've seen you say that some of the early models were suspiciously symmetrical. I mean, we went up very fast. We came down roughly at the same speed we went up it does start to look now as though the downward tail is much, much less steep. Or is it too early even to say that?
1: I think that's probably right. In New York still, 40% of people who are getting tested are positive for coronavirus, right? That's down from 50% or 55%, but that's still a very high number. And it's going to take a lot of time for things to simmer down completely, I think, because most Western countries are willing to shut down non-essential services, but some things are still happening. Construction is happening. Food delivery is happening. Obviously, the medical industry is happening. We may or may not enforce bans on parks and playgrounds and things like that, right? And so it's kind of at a level where we seem to have calibrated an equilibrium where it is shrinking. If you want to be technical, it's called the R, the reproduction number. It does seem to be below one, which is good, right? But it may not be much below one. I think Angela Merkel was talking about this yesterday, right? It's just like, a little below one or a little above one, then things can kind of simmer at a fairly high level for for a long time. In China, although I think there are debates over how reliable their data is, in China, they had stricter measures. And that can cause things to drop in a hurry, but they're also maybe not sustainable for long periods of time. What
2: do you think is the most difficult thing to make assumptions about accurately?
1: In the long run, there are kind of two interrelated questions, right? One is, what is the true fatality rate, not of all people who are diagnosed, but of all people who are infected? So the infection fatality rate. And the reason that's hard is that we don't really know how many undiagnosed cases there are. The problem is we are still only testing a small fraction of the population in almost every country except like Iceland, literally. And some are better than others. South Korea is much better about testing than the UK. But we're only now starting to kind of test random clusters of people and not people we suspected of being sick to begin with. And it turns out that in some of these studies, a lot of people that were asymptomatic or that were never diagnosed, at least, actually had coronavirus. So it may be that we only are capturing one out of every 10 cases or even one out of every 100. Well, if it's one out of every 10, that's a very different implication for how many people actually die of those who get it than if it's one out of every 20 or 40 or 100. So that kind of governs everything else, right? If it turns out that the infection fatality rate is 1.5% versus 0.15%, that's pretty different in terms of how many people would ultimately get it. And frankly, when societies begin to make the choice of, okay, do we try to reopen or do we really have to be largely locked down until there's a vaccine or some other intervention, right? You know, knowing that number is. Is important. It's just a number that we don't really know yet, and it could be off again. If you talk to epidemiologists, it could be off by a factor of ten in some direction or another, and that makes things that makes things very hard.
0: So, given all that, already political capital is being made out of cross country comparisons. This country is doing better; that country is doing worse, and yet we're doing this under conditions of deep uncertainty. Is there any legitimacy to those kinds of comparisons? I mean, in Europe, there's a lot of talk about you know the Greeks are doing really well. Spanish, maybe the UK is doing really badly. Should we be parking that?
1: So if you look at the number of deaths as a share of the population, that probably tells you something. If you look at it as a share of the number of cases, it probably doesn't because some countries like Germany or Norway are testing far more people per capita, maybe 10 times as many, or Iceland might be a hundred times as many. And so looking at the number of cases is not very meaningful unless you kind of know something about who is being tested and how many people are being tested. Looking at the number of deaths, unfortunately can be more indicative of how bad things are. Although there are some factors there that are complicated as well. Countries that have younger, healthier populations with fewer underlying health conditions are faring a bit better. Also some countries and some States in the U S are doing a better job of trying to count deaths that occur outside of hospital settings. So nursing homes is a big one, as well as people's regular homes. France, for example, is doing, in my view, an admirable job of going back and saying, we know all these people died in nursing homes. We're going to try to see how many it was, and we're going to include them, even though it'll make our data look superficially worse, right? I'm sure there were also lots of people dying in similar settings in other countries like Italy or Spain, but they just haven't been counted yet. Nor in the UK. Nor in the UK. In the U.S., it varies from state to state. Some states now are having what they call a probable death category, so it's not people who necessarily have been tested. And by the way, if you don't have enough testing, depending on how the country reports it can also mean that you're missing some deaths, right? Some countries and some states are strict, and they'll say, well, unless you actually got a test while you were alive or posthumously, and we know you had COVID-19, then we can't officially count that. And so people are now looking at excess mortality. They're looking at how many people actually died relative to a normal week in March or April. And then look at how many people are officially tallied as having died from coronavirus. In some jurisdictions, those cases match up quite well, meaning we're probably capturing a large majority. In some, they do not. Some of the worst affected regions in Italy, for example, you may only be capturing half of deaths or even maybe a bit less than that. And so that will cause more variation once we're able to count all the people kind of months or years from now, I tend to think it will make the worst places worse still, because it's when you have an overwhelmed medical system that's when more people are dying at home. And also literally, like, it takes time to count a death. A death is not a small, trivial thing to count, right? And so in many countries, like if you look at the data from Sweden, for example, very few deaths are reported on Saturdays and Sundays. Well, I assure you that there are no fewer Swedes dying on Saturdays and Sundays, it's just that, for whatever reason, there are bottlenecks in the system. Things are not, offices are not open, right? And so, therefore, you can have funny effects based on what day of the week it is and how many people are reported newly kind of dead, because these are not reported in real time. There is a lag between, well, A, between getting sick and dying. One thing we've learned is that there are long hospital stays, but B, it can take several days or longer between when someone actually passes away and when that death is counted in some official number somewhere.
2: When we get to the, not the end, because I suspect that this is ongoing, but when we're in a position where we can understand this wave of this virus better than we can at the moment, what role do you think that luck will have played in the final outcomes? Because obviously there's going to be some political pressure to make judgments about the quality of policy responses by using data. But isn't it quite possible that actually some of it will be attributable to things that will have been beyond anybody's control?
1: Yeah, I agree with that a lot. If you look at New York, for example, there is evidence now that there were cases and community spread present in New York in mid to late February, whereas the first official cases were the first week in March if you have two additional weeks of unchecked spread that can lead to there being something on the order of 10 to 20 times more cases in the population once you start to notice and implement policies. And so it's kind of like, okay, if a certain jurisdiction is three days to a week or longer too late in implementing social distancing, which I believe is true by the way of New York and probably also true of the UK, but still if you had two weeks worth of unchecked spread before anyone was doing anything, versus being introduced a bit later, then then that can have a fairly profound effect. Things like weather potentially matter, that's disputed, but potentially it matters. Things like density maybe matter, although there are lots of very dense places in Asia that have not had as many problems containing it as we have in Europe and the US. Things like social structures, how do different types of people mix and congregate? What's the mixing between older and younger generations? In the population. But yeah, I mean, if you look at, for example, Belgium and the Netherlands both have very bad outbreaks. If you had talk to people, they'd say Belgium did a lot of the things you're supposed to do, being pretty careful, and the Netherlands did not. They were pursuing more of a kind of lax herd immunity strategy. And in the end, they tend to have similarly bad outbreaks. That does not mean that Belgium screwed up. It meant that Belgium probably did things that were correct, but that that can be outweighed in any one country by other factors.
0: And there's a focus at the moment in some places on one-off events that are almost now being mythologized that there was a football match between Atalanta and Valencia in northern Italy that I think is now known as the bomb. It looks like it was the epicenter. There's a political row brewing in the UK about a horse racing festival, the Cheltenham Festival, that went ahead past a point where people thought that those kind of big gatherings should be shut down. Is it a mistake to focus on one-off events as possibly really shifting the trajectory that a single decision to shut a single big gathering could have made a big difference in the long run?
1: Well, there's two dimensions to this, right? I mean, certainly the amount of spread taking place in February, or depending where you are, maybe early February or mid-February, that's rather important. So Mardi Gras is an event in New Orleans, the United States, which attracts people from all over the world that occurred in late February, and that is associated, people believe, with a bad outbreak in New Orleans that is now getting a bit better, but was very bad for a while. Do people deserve culpability? For that is a more complicated question, right? I mean, in February, it's a busy month usually for conferences and events, right? You know, I was kind of traveling all over the country, going to different political primary states, going to conferences and stuff like that. And, you know, it wasn't as though people were having Debates about, hey, should we cancel this whole caucus in Nevada or whatever, right? There weren't really those sorts of debates occurring. Maybe there should have been, but then you get into kind of a case of what should people have known and when and what precautions should they have taken. So the later you get out in time and space, right, once you get to March, by March, then there's not much excuse for not shutting things down. But human beings aren't perfect, predictions aren't perfect, and I don't know without perfect hindsight how realistic it could have been for policymakers to make these decisions in February. But I do think like, look, one thing we probably need is a notion of an early warning system and a notion of different triggers for different policy interventions, right? Because the first thing you probably would would want to shut down are things like big conferences and big sporting events where people come from all over the country, all over the world and congregate close to one another. Those are probably the things that you would associate with more spread, by the way, probably the last thing to be turned back on. <laughs> if you're in the conference business, if you're hoping to see a baseball game in an American stadium with other people, with a full crowd, probably not going to happen in the next couple of months. Maybe by the fall, people are saying. But those are clearly events where at least people think there's a lot of spread.
0: So where does Florida spring break fit into that? Because the other thing that you see in the politics of this is, and you write about this a lot, you know, we all have our priors. What we don't know, we fill in with what we think ought to explain it. And also what we think is where the moral culpability lies. You know, the big judgments being made about the action of the governors of different states, Florida stands out at one end, maybe Washington state, I'm not sure, stands out the other way. Are those judgments, they're deeply political but can they be backed up with the data? Or is it either too early or will it always be too early in a sense for that?
1: I think it's too early and it may or may not always be too early. I mean, what's going to happen is you're going to find like a lot of conflating variables, right? So it may be, for example, that Florida's decision to not close the beaches and Spring Breakers' decision to go on Spring Break was quite bad, but that the warmer weather in Florida counteracts that. And so, if you have a model that can tease out the impact of five or six or eight or 10 or 12 different variables, then you can maybe see the effect of policy interventions. It's a little bit hard to do that right now. Obviously, we're kind of still midway through this, if we're even midway, so we don't really know kind of how bad things will end up. The data quality varies from place to place. But eventually, we'll be able to make some pretty decent inferences, I think. At the same time, if Policy interventions is one of the five or 10 factors that matter. It also means there'll be plenty of exceptions, right? Places that did things right and things got bad anyway, or places that did things wrong and for whatever reason they got lucky and therefore being slow to implement necessary measures will not have had as big an effect as, it, as you might expect it to have, or maybe should have in some sense, quote unquote.
2: One of the things that's been really striking looking at what's been going on in American politics from over here, is seeing how much of this is being played out in terms of America as a federal republic. And I wonder what sense that you have of whether this is showing the strengths of American federalism, how impossible it would be to have national authority at such a moment, or whether it's putting increased strains on the American federal republic because of the disputes about authority between the federal government and some of the states
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is one thing that makes cross country comparisons hard is that it seems to me like in the coverage of the US and the international media, there is a lack of understanding for how empowered state and local governments are. In some sense, they are the more important units because the epidemic occurs at a local level, right? If I have it in New York, I cannot give it to someone in California unless we're on a plane together. I can give it to someone else at my grocery store though, or my hospital or whatever else. And so, What really you have is a series of epidemics in metro areas or states, and states being able to initiate policy is proper and healthy. But look, I don't think anyone would say the federal response in the US has been very good. In particular, the White House does not seem to have any sort of plan for how to reopen in a way that is safe or even undertaking some risk. There's no kind of rational conception of the risks involved. Again, Keeping in mind, this is kind of a series of local and regional outbreaks. If you look at different parts of the U.S. and compare it to different parts of Europe, then there is a lot of mishmashing on that list, right? New York is roughly as bad as Spain and Italy, but California might look more like Germany or something, right? And South Dakota might look like Poland or something, you know? And so it's not clear that overall Europe or the U.S., Has done better or worse. So, my inference is that despite a lack of federal responsiveness in the US, it means that probably state and local responses are fairly good. I also think if you had a more, frankly, competent federal response, then maybe the US would stick out as a positive outlier. I mean, the US does have some advantages. We have good hospitals. We had a little bit more warning about what would happen because we were able to see hospitals being overwhelmed in Italy and Spain. It is not a terribly dense country. It is not a terribly old country. We have an innovative private sector. And so the U.S. could have been in a position where there would still be problems, but we handled it relatively well. And instead, you do have the New Yorks and Louisianas and the Michigans, places where things got quite bad. And our plan for reopening is not very clear.
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Planning for your next trip? When you make that US European comparison, it's interesting because you know, on the whole, people compare US outcomes with individual European nation states. Whereas when you think of Europe as a whole, it's a continental comparison, it's continent to continent in a way. And though there are European Federalists who wish that the European Union was better at coordinating the response, there's an instinctive feeling it's incredibly difficult to coordinate a response across a continent with so much variety, diversity it's just a massive challenge. Should people be more forgiving of the US federal government if they were to think it is like not coordinating response within, say, France, it would be like coordinating response within Europe? It suddenly looks a lot harder.
1: I mean, look, I tend to think that which countries have the best response is going to be felt more in the recovery phase than in the emergence phase. For better or worse, with some exceptions, there were some countries that either locked down very early, like Denmark, say, or that still haven't locked down, like Sweden. If you kind of take those exceptions aside, 90% of countries kind of locked down at about the same point in the epidemic trajectory. So kind of politics aside, when you're at a phase where things are doubling every three days, well, okay, maybe you can postpone something for a little bit longer. And it does have effects, by the way, but like when things are doubling every three days then there's a certain inevitability to the actions that you would take. Conversely, coming out of this, the choices are a lot more complicated. The choice of like, well, um, do we basically induce a depression for however many more months to avoid a lot of people dying? I mean, that's actually like a really difficult choice to make because it depends on exactly how bad the depression is, exactly how many people are dying and how well you can kind of get back to semi-normalcy. And I think that's where you will see probably countries that are better organized will have an easier time of things. And so I'm not sure I'm particularly optimistic about how the U.S. will coordinate that. By the way, you're going to have countries probably where people come back too soon. And then you have another shutdown and you have a whole second and third wave. And so that remains to be seen.
2: When you were answering the first question, I got the impression that you thought that the question about when the United States should open up, so to speak, or begin opening up was a question for the federal government. But in some sense, the implication of your argument, particularly when we think about the U.S. as a continental state and these states having very different kinds of outbreaks, but also being in very different economic positions, very different health positions, that actually that decision belongs at the state level and not at the federal level.
1: I mean, in many ways, I think a state and local response is the more appropriate factor in terms of kind of exactly when to reopen or shut down There are some things though that are assisted by national action. So probably doing as much testing as you would want would be helped by national actions to spur more testing taking place. You know, restrictions on travel from place to place, who has jurisdiction over that? I mean, you know, there are some states where if you drive across the border and you have the wrong set of license plates, then police may stop you and say, Where are you coming from? Do you need to be quarantined? Because we have rules here about coming from a certain state to another state, right? You know, and there's also probably something about kind of the overall tone that leaders set. I am worried in the U.S. that the decision about like whether to reopen and how to reopen will become quite partisan as most things do in the United States. Also, you have factors like the average Republican is in a more rural area where they may have less spread, where they may be more hurt economically in different ways also, because they can't necessarily work from home, right? And so so it's going to get very complicated in that sense. But yeah, look, in theory, having state and local authority is probably good on balance for a crisis where it occurs at a state and regional level. And this is a big sweeping generalization. In my view, in general, states and local governments are, in the U.S., maybe more functional and maybe more competent than probably this federal government in particular, and maybe then federal governments in general. And so, you know, for years, it was conservatives in the United States who were talking about the importance of federalism, so devolution of power to states and localities. Now there are some liberals who are saying, boy, I really wish we had someone other than Trump in office. But given that we do have Trump, I'm really glad that we do have states and localities that have a lot of power, and which are not acting in a terribly partisan way. Yes, there is some of it. And there were some Republican governors who were slower than Democratic ones to close certain things down. But the differences weren't, weren't that profound, really.
0: Nate, we can't let you go. I hope it's okay if we now just ask you a bit about the fact that this is also an election year. And that is one of those accidents of timing. I mean, it is luck. So in the UK, we happen to have our election just before all of this hit. And one of the things that gives me slightly sleepless moments is thinking about what would have happened in UK politics if the resolution that we got through Boris Johnson's victory had been delayed. I mean, there was a point late last year where it looked like UK politics was stuck, Parliament wasn't working, an election was possibly coming in the spring, Brexit was completely up in the air. If this had hit under those circumstances, we would be in a very different situation as a nation. So maybe we got lucky, I don't know, or unlucky. We have a Prime Minister who is secure. This is happening in an election year, 538, you spent most of your time until this hit focusing on that. Do those models have to be completely rethought when you think about how you project forward, assuming it is Biden's candidacy to November under these conditions? Is it a totally different ballgame?
1: I would not say it's totally different, but there are a couple of things to consider. One is obviously the kind of, effect of the virus itself on elections. So far, Trump's approval rating improved slightly, but only slightly. Whereas in the UK, for example, Boris Johnson's numbers are way up, you know, in Italy and Germany and all these other countries that are pretty badly affected, South Korea, right? You see substantial improvements in leaders' approval ratings. There's what's called a rally around the flag effect where you're in a time of emergency, you get more patriotic and you tend to say, I'm going to support my leader as we get through this crisis together, right? In the US, you've only had a small sniff of that, which is kind of fading, whereas you've had more of it in other parts of the world. And so that might not be such a bullish indication for Trump. You know, at the same time, like, are we undergoing a second wave in the fall or did the first wave never end? Or are we actually in a period of recovery? I mean, You can imagine that between the economic effects and the health effects and the psychological effects, that would tend to outweigh other factors in the election. At the same time, Americans are very polarized and very partisans, and I'm sure folks here know. And so maybe it wouldn't affect things as much as in a country where things are more fluid and where there are more swing voters. And then there's a question of, like, how does it actually affect the mechanics of voting? Most swing states allow you to vote by mail if you want, without meaning really an excuse. There are a few exceptions. I think governors in those states will try to make more options open. It depends, right? In Wisconsin, last week, we had an election where Republicans wanted to make it harder for people to vote by mail. It turned out they lost some races they were expecting to win in that state. And so it may be that they realize, hey, look, actually, we don't want to restrict people's right to vote because it's not actually clear, number one, who benefits from it. A lot of older people like to vote by mail. that had to be more conservative. And number two, in a time of pandemic, if you're actually making someone make a choice to go take a health risk, to go physically vote somewhere, they're not going to be pleased about that. And if they do vote, it might not be for your party. So I think we're going to have a move toward making voting by mail easier in the United States as it already is in some places, but that does introduce more uncertainty. And maybe polls that assume that there's a lot of voting in person, maybe Pulse will have to tweak those assumptions. So I guess I'm saying like, not like the shape of the model is different, just you have to kind of take every parameter and assume the error is, is maybe twice as wide as it would be in an ordinary election.
2: One thing that seems striking from over here, which I think you've already alluded to, is that the American debate has been a lot more partisan than it has in other countries. And I think that what is striking is that there already seems to be a contest a bitter contest in American politics over the blame game and then the divisions about choices that should be made in relation to the health risks versus the economic risks. I thought it was quite striking when it became clear that Tom Wolfe's name is, isn't it, the Pennsylvania governor is going to veto this bill that's come to him which would allow more Pennsylvania businesses um, to open. So you've got Republican-controlled House and Senate and then a Democratic governor that's going to say, we're not doing that. So can you see the ways in which the election is likely to play out in terms of the virus itself? I mean, are these other things that the election looked like it was going to be contested about actually now going to be taken over by the politics of the virus?
1: Yeah, look, I think the politics of reopening is more complicated in some ways than the politics of closing, because you are making a lot of trade-offs, you are revealing a lot of preferences about tolerance for risk and other things, and you are going to have, I think, a lot of partisan divides where if you are fairly comfortable and a knowledge sector worker, it's probably easier to work from home. And that might describe Democrats more than Republicans, for example. You already have seen some protests in Michigan, for example. There are some people protesting on the state capitol against restrictions that the governor there, the Democrat Richard Whitmer, had put into place. Although I should say for the time being, those reactions are kind of not the norm. If you look at polling, then for right now, something like 70 or 75% of Americans are very worried about, or at least somewhat worried about coronavirus. And it's hard to get 75% of Americans to agree on much of anything, really. The question is kind of what happens over time, because we, you know, we've never really been through this, something like this before, right? When some states might open up, maybe people would be like, how come my friend in Pennsylvania can do this, and I can't do that in New York? Once the fear subsides a little bit, that becomes less predictable, and so, and so I don't know. But yeah, look. Um, so far, Americans have been better about social distancing than I thought they would be. I thought we're you know we're five weeks into this in some places now. I would have thought that there would be twice as much unrest as you've seen these sporadic outbreaks. At the same time, I would really hesitate to predict what it would look like five more weeks from now, let alone kind of five months from now.
0: And Nate, finally, so we recorded a podcast on the morning after Super Tuesday, which is almost the last date of the pre-corona world. I'm amazed when I think back to that, that we didn't spend any time talking about this. We just talked about Biden and all the rest as though somehow we were still in that world. But Biden's candidacy, I mean, it's a remarkable story. It's been overtaken by this story, but it was a remarkable thing what happened, and you spent, you and Five Thirty Eight spent an awful lot of time covering it, thinking about it. How does Biden's candidacy look to you now? So the guy who was the favourite at the beginning, and the, I made the point on our podcast because I looked at the betting charts, he was favourite five times, and five times he fell away and was replaced as favourite in the betting markets by someone else. Harris, Warren, you know, I think at one point Bloomberg was favourite, you know, it's this extraordinary thing. Every time he became favourite, he then fell away. And then Almost overnight, this miracle happened, and he nailed it. And it's even possible there'll be a point where he's no longer favorite, you know, if something happens yeah. to him. Just tell us, how do we understand the Biden candidacy? I can't wrap my head around
1: it. So, I mean, there, there are kind of two interpretations of it, right? One is that Biden was underrated all along. That, hey, look, he was the guy who led in polls for all of last year, He's the former vice president. He has a diverse coalition racially. He has a diverse coalition in terms of class, right? He has a lot of working class support. And he may not have been very kind of popular with elites, but he was in touch with the average Democratic voter. And so that's a story of how, although it may have seemed like he was never the favorite, that that reflected certain prejudices and biases from the press and that he was underrated all along, right? The other story is that there is a sort of miracle, as you put it, where Democratic voters got very nervous about nominating Bernie Sanders. And also that like just a bunch of things happened to come together at once. That Michael Bloomberg was really bad in his first debate. People were like, Bloomberg's not viable. All of a sudden, there are not that many moderate alternatives left. And all of a sudden, maybe Biden doesn't look so bad. And then Buttigieg endorses him and Klobuchar and Beto O'Rourke, who had dropped out, but all these people, right? So you know, it would be like, oh my gosh, there's this kind of gigantic remarkable comeback that has relatively few parallels. and so. But there are two ways to tell that story. And one makes it kind of very contingent on a lot of random things happening at just the right time. The other one makes it seem like it was inevitable all along. And stating those to you guys, I don't know which story I believe more. Right? It's probably somewhere halfway in between, I think.
0: Is there at least possibly a third story, which is it wasn't just contingent, it was coordinated by maybe Obama. I mean, a few things had to happen, like Bloomberg had to be terrible in the debate. But that thing that people thought might happen with Trump's candidacy, you know, that the party would get its act together and it would coordinate this huge field of different people squabbling suddenly coalesced and seemed to have a kind of mind, you know, a collective mind of its own, the thing that never happened with the Republicans. I don't know if that's a third story, a kind of hybrid of the two stories, but from the outside, that looked like, What was so remarkable about it was it was both a miracle and it was a miracle that was engineered.
1: Well, maybe the most fundamental problem with all political analysis is that people assume kind of whatever happened last time is the new law. And in fact, there are times when it's the opposite because people react to that. The fact that Republicans blundered so much because they did want to stop Trump, GOP elites did, and they completely failed to do it, that might have made Democrats more aware (laughs) Although they did wait a long time, but you kind of somehow got into like a new equilibrium where, I mean, I don't think you've ever seen such explicit efforts for party to come together quite that fast behind one person. And it worked. And Democratic voters kind of took those cues, which, you know, it's also a question of like Democrats were very concerned about electability, which is a loaded phrase that means who do they think can beat Trump. And I think Sanders had problems with that. In the end, Democrats were more willing to say, OK, we're going to listen to these elites because they're telling us how we can beat Trump. That helped Biden, too. I think maybe not as much as some people say. I mean, the candidates who I think were really hurt by electability were candidates like Elizabeth Warren, like Kamala Harris, like women and people of color. People in the U.S. assume that, oh, it's safer to nominate a white male. But Biden did benefit from that dynamic as well.
2: Isn't the thing seems to me, though, that the one contingent thing in it is was somebody else. Going to be able to mobilize African American voters. Because if that weren't the case, and Biden started in a very strong position there, then you would have bet on him winning the nomination, regardless actually of what had happened in Iowa and New Hampshire. So the ways in which it could have turned out differently than it actually did would have been if somebody, perhaps Sanders, but I can see quite a number of reasons why that wouldn't have happened, would have been able to do significantly better in the South Carolina primary. And that once that wasn't the case, then we went back to the most likely determined outcome from the beginning.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The two weeks where it looked like Biden was not the favorite were the two weeks that coincided with Iowa and New Hampshire and then Nevada, which is a more diverse state. But Iowa and New Hampshire are very white and non-representative states. Biden's numbers bent but never broke with African-American voters it was not just like the Democratic establishment coming to rescue Biden. It was some combination of the establishment and the overlap with African-American voters. And it's often been a highly important alliance. That's kind of the backbone of the Democratic Party that I think now in every election dating back to 1992 with Bill Clinton, who the majority of African-American voters went for became the nominee. So that alliance remains intact and remains the most powerful and decisive force in democratic politics.
0: And Nate, I was joking and saying there's still time for Biden no longer to be favorite. (laughs) Again, I mean, it's a long way to the convention. If there is a convention, virtual convention, it feels now all of us locked down living day to day. November seems like a decade away. There is still a lot that could happen. Biden's candidacy was so weird because there was so much volatility. And then we ended up where we started. I mean, it's an impossible question to answer. It's going to be volatile, but it must at least be possible that the same story will play out. We get to November, despite all the volatility, the fundamentals are what decide this.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, I think we've seen in the US and the UK, right? A lot of things that you might've given a 20 or 30% chance probability of happening have happened. That still means 70 or 80% of the time, the boring kind of predictable thing happens, right? I'm not saying, by the way, that Biden is a 70% favorite over Trump, I think it's probably 50-50 roughly. But a lot of times you do have between partisanship and the state of the economy, and you know, sometimes kind of the candidate in it for the long haul, doing the kind of less spectacular, more boring strategy, they often do perfectly well. And it's not clear that the fundamentals are as broken as people seem to assume. But coronavirus really is. I mean, I, you know, I kind of jokingly to myself have always thought, okay, well, every election I've covered gets crazier. And so what's going to happen in 2020, right? What, what evil designs do they have for us anymore? and I'm not happy with myself for having asked that question, right? Because you've seen now how terrible, I mean, this has been for, for the world. Again, I'm kind of amazed as of right now, as of mid-April, how people in different countries have been able to adapt to this very, very, very strange and different reality. So I don't know if that means there's a guarantee. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means that the election will seem strangely normal or totally abnormal or what. Look, you can be pessimistic about what the next month or so looks like, right? There is a lot of uncertainty over what things look like by the fall. And so it's a little too early to be kind of being too specific about kind of assuming what world we're living in then.
0: You can, of course, read a lot more by Nate and his colleagues at five thirty-eight. It is highly recommended. Coming up soon on Talking Politics, we will be speaking to Adam Tooze, we will be speaking to Diane Coyle, and very soon, our new series, Talking Politics, History of Ideas. Do please join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics.